Welcome to the Thames and Hudson podcast. Hello and welcome to the Thames and Hudson podcast, where we're joined in this episode by Joanna Moorhead, writer, journalist and cousin of Leonora Carrington. Born in 1917 in Lancashire, England, Leonora Carrington is today recognised as a pioneering painter and writer, a genius of surrealism, who held her own among the movement's macho protagonists from her early 20s. Defying conventions of her time, not to mention the expectations of her moneyed Catholic upbringing, Carrington abandoned family, society and England to embrace experiences and artistic circles in France, Spain, Portugal, New York and Mexico City, where she would spend most of her adult life. The interests which guided Carrington's life and work, feminism, ecology, non-religious spirituality and the interconnectedness of everything, are today shared by many. Yet for decades, Carrington was underrated, not least in her own family, where her story was regarded as a source of scandal rather than celebration. It would be Joanna who set out to find her cousin and to bring her remarkable work and wisdom to a wider audience. Her new book, Surreal Spaces, takes readers through Carrington's life via the many places she experienced and the places which infused and inspired her art. I caught up with Joanna from the Thames and Hudson offices in London. So, Joanna, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on the Thames and Hudson podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'd love to begin by asking how you got to know Leonora Carrington. She was your father's cousin, as far as I understand. But growing up, it sounds like she was really kept in the the shadows of your family story. That's absolutely right. When I was growing up, I was aware that there'd been some woman in my family who disappeared and that there was some mystery and scandal surrounding what had happened to her. And it struck me even as a child in my, I don't know, early teens as, as an interesting story. And I was going to become a journalist and I could scent an interesting story when I got wind of one, but I couldn't find out any details. The only details I think I got from my grandmother who would have been Leonora's aunt, was that I somehow discovered that Mexico was involved in her story and I knew that art was involved in her story. And I guess even as a teenager, I could have guessed that there was a love affair because that's where scandals come from, isn't it? But then it was many years later, in 2006, and by then I was in my early 40s living in South London with my husband and our four children. And I went to a sort of cocktail party, a little party of another parent in my kids' class at school. 
And there was just one person there, as far as I remember, who wasn't a mother or a parent in the class. So I started talking to this woman and she told me that she was an art historian and she was Mexican. And I didn't know anything about art history or Mexico. So it was a pretty short conversation. But as I was turning away from her, I remembered this mystery and I said listen I'm sure you would never have heard of this woman but there was someone in my family and she disappeared and I know art in Mexico involved in her story and her name was Leonora Carrington and this woman was amazed because she didn't think she would have heard of my father's cousin who disappeared many years earlier and I didn't think she would have heard of her either but what she said back to me was well I can't believe you don't know about her Leonora is the most famous artist alive in Mexico today and this woman really conveyed to me that Leonora was somebody who I should get to know. And then a few weeks later, by complete chance, I was invited to Mexico on a press trip. It was the opening of a new hotel in Cancun. And I don't do travel journalism, but I said, well, I'll go if I could go via Mexico City. And they said, no, no, we can't send you via Mexico City. And then a few days later, they got back in touch and said, actually, if you want to come, we'll take you by, you can have a week in Mexico City en route. And I said, well, then you're on. So a few months later, I was on the plane. I'd made contact via Leonora's gallery, the gallery that represented her in Mexico City. And I got in touch with them and I said, I'm going to be in Mexico City anyway, which of course, well, kind of was true, but really what, you know, I was going for her. And the gallerist said, oh, I'll go and see Leonora later and I'll bring you back and tell you what she says. And she phoned me back and said, well, Leonora says if you you're going to be in Mexico City anyway and you'd like to go over for a cup of tea you know here's her number give her a ring on your first morning don't ring before 10 and uh, I arrived in Mexico City and the first morning I called the number at about two minutes past 10 and in that phone call Leonora said two things to me that I've never forgotten well she said I've been waiting for you to call and later on I thought that was an odd thing to say as it was only two minutes past 10 and I wondered if What she meant was she'd been waiting for somebody to call from our family. And then she said, the second thing she said was, well, are you going to come straight over, meaning straight round to the house? And I said, well, yes, absolutely. I'd love to. Within 15 minutes, I was at her front door. A cup of tea became five years of visits to her. Amazing. So so something really quite serendipitous there in this chance meeting and then this unusual professional opportunity that that led you to to Leonora's front door. You describe how she had always really avoided publicity and only occasionally gave interviews. When she did, she tended to be very evasive. She really refuted sound bites or any kind of neat narrative of her life or her art. And I was curious how as a professional journalist, but also Leonora's relative, you approached your conversations with her and and how you've approached writing about her. It's always been very intertwined. What attracted me to to going to find Leonora was the story. I knew by midnight on that night when I met the Mexican art historian, I knew this was a terrific story. And I also knew that going to talk to her would be a terrific story. So I arrived at her front door as a journalist, really, obviously delighted to be her cousin. And that was my call. That's what got me in. I mean, I've talked to other journalists who spent weeks in Mexico City trying to get into Leonora's kitchen. And I was there quarter past 10 on my first morning. 
But I very quickly realised in those first few days how important a family connection is. There was an approach to life she had that I understood. Uh, Like her, I'm from Lancashire. I'm the daughter of a textile mill owner. Obviously, that's not unconnected. I very much kind of got her sense of humour. We got on. We connected. And so... I remember on about because after after I'd, that first day, I spent the whole day with her and then that became the pattern of every day. And on about the Friday, and I think I was flying to Cancun to do the hotel story on the Saturday, I suddenly realized that I had this piece to produce for The Guardian. So I got my notebook out and she took one, looked at it and said, what's that? And I said, well, I'm that this is my notebook. I'm a journalist. and I'm writing a story. And she said to me, you're not a journalist here. That meant a lot to me because I was well realized by then that I was much more interested in being Leonora's cousin than I was interested in writing this story. Uh, although, of course, I did write the story. You know, I had a commission and I and I wrote the story. But as I left her house on that last day, I said to her, you know, this hasn't been enough. I, I really want to, 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 to see you more. And she said, well, you know where I am? Come back. So she really kind of banished your notebook from the conversation How did you recall everything that you observed and that you discussed with her? Because there's so much in this book that's so vivid and evocative. There's so much of Leonora's own voice in there. Were you taking notes secretly on the side or or afterwards? What was your working process like during those visits? Well, that's exactly what I did, actually. At each visit, I would have a notebook and I'd go back to my hotel and I would always write a little bit about, I basically kept a diary when I was there and I'd, and I'd write, our, you know, what had happened in our conversations. And I would do that every night pretty religiously. So I'd remember phrases she'd used, things she'd said. I'd get a sense of her. I'd say that, you know, the things that happened, the people who came to the house that day, what was going on. We talked about the fact that I hoped one day to write a book. But she wasn't sure about me writing a book in her lifetime. Well, she didn't want me to write a book in her lifetime. And after she died, I actually didn't do anything about it for quite a few years. And yet you did embark at that point after Leonora's death on this journey back through her life, visiting many of the places that she'd lived in and experienced also beyond Mexico. What inspired that journey? Yeah, well, you're right. I went off after she died on a sort of journey. And then I did the journey again. I went back again to write the Thames and Hudson books. I've kind of been everywhere that mattered in Leonora's life two or three times now. And of course, the house in Mexico City, I spent a lot of time in during the time I knew her. I I realized from the outset that I could learn a lot from this woman. And I guess I'd always, I, I know that I knew when she was still alive that the way of continuing in a way the relationship or how I would find out more about her after her death was by doing a much more deep dive into her work and her paintings and also, of course, her writing. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that deep dive, Joanna, and about the places that you visited that had been so formative and so important for Leonora and her work. Maybe we can begin by journeying right back to her childhood home, Crookie Hall in Lancashire. How do you think that shaped her life and her art? The Carringtons, uh, Leonora's father, Harold, um, 
had become wealthy quite quickly. And he used his wealth to rent bigger, grander properties. Her family, when she was about three, moved to Cookie Hall. And it's a kind of gothic, rather overpowering, dark stone house with lots of corridors and turrets. You can see why it would be quite a frightening, scary place for a child. It's not a comfortable place. It's the kind of place where a sort of nightmare story might be set, somewhere that seems to have an aura of sort of menace about it. I think that must have really influenced her early years. So she lived there till she was about 10 years old. There was something about Crookie that really embedded itself in her imagination. So there was something that started there in her life that she was always interested in and always going back to in her mind, if not physically. So on the one hand, you you spoke about this running away, this breaking free from her family and its value set. But on the other, always seeming to be drawn back to that childhood home. That's right. I, I mean, I think that she that she was always conflicted as a person in, in terms of whether she was trying to leave her family, which clearly she did, or return to it, which she did as well throughout her life in her work, in her painting and in her writing. She went back constantly, really, to the beginnings, to her life in the UK. And I can understand that. I mean, I think she says this herself in her book, you know, can we ever really leave our childhood behind? Can any of us really leave our childhood behind? You can take yourself to live on the other side of the world, as Leonora managed to do, but your childhood is always part of who you are. And if you're trying to work out who you are, which, you know, like all of us, she was always trying to do, then that's a big part of the jigsaw, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's so interesting how this plays out in Leonora's work, as you say, the departure from and yet the artistic return to her beginnings. I'd love to move forward now to the the next step in Leonora's journey, the next step in her breaking free. It's 1935 when she moves to London, initially expected by her parents to participate in the upper-class debutante scene. But she hates it, and she manages to persuade her parents to let her enroll in art school. And it's here at this time that she also famously meets Max Ernst, which would be the beginnings of a, a really profound romantic and artistic bond. What did Leonora tell you about their relationship? Even though I was meeting Leonora so many years after her first her meeting with Max Ernst, which was in 1937, she remembered very clearly many elements of, of that meeting and of the, the next couple of years that were going to follow, which were going to be the time of her love affair with Max. Although their love affair would end sadly, I mean, they weren't going to spend their whole lives together, there was not animosity at the end of the relationship. They never saw each other again after they parted, although they both lived for many more years. Max didn't die till the 1970s. But she was always ready to acknowledge what knowing him and loving him and being his partner, but being his colleague as well and working alongside him, what that had given to her as an artist and as a person. Because she, one thing she used to say was that she really got her education from Max. 
I mean, she'd been to school. She'd, she'd been she'd been educated at home by a governess till she was probably about 10. Then she'd gone to some convent boarding schools, but she'd been expelled from those. That hadn't gone well at all. Then she'd gone off to a, a finishing school in uh, Florence where she did at least learn a bit about art. Then she'd been to another finishing school in Paris. Her education had been, not only had it been patchy, but it, it hadn't been dealing her the kind of cards she needed. And when she met Max, and when they, particularly when they moved together to the south of France, they, they met at a dinner party in London, but then they fairly swiftly moved to Paris, where Max was living at the time. And then from there, they moved together to the south of France. And particularly in that period, when there were just the two of them in the south of France, I think he opened the door for her to a new world, a new world of learning, of looking at the world, of reading. I mean, I'm sure she'd always been a keen reader, but maybe now she was reading different sorts of books and she was just looking at the world in a new way. And Max, who was much older than her, he was 46 when, when, she, when she met him and she was 20. Max was her tutor in many ways, her teacher. He showed her a different way of being, really. You mentioned earlier the air of scandal that surrounded Leonora in your family. Was that prompted by this love affair with this much older man, this German man, which I guess at that time might also have been controversial? It certainly was. Uh, Leonora's parents had enrolled her in this whole debutante, she called it the cattle market. What they wanted was for her to marry an ideally an aristocrat, a Catholic aristocrat would have been absolutely perfect because she was the only daughter and her marriage could have taken that family into new echelons, let's say, because that's how it, how it was in English upper class in those days. She did two seasons and neither of these resulted in any marriage proposals or even anywhere near any marriage proposals. There weren't even any eligible boyfriends on the scene. Her parents were profoundly disappointed. And I think that's one of the reasons why they allowed her to stay in London, because I think they thought, well, you know, she's just got, you know, she just needs a bit of time and then she'll knuckle under and we could maybe put her in another season or maybe just at some party in London, she'll meet this wonderful Catholic aristocrat we want her to marry. So then when they heard from somebody else in London that she had met somebody and it was this married and he wasn't only married, he was also divorced from his first wife. And he was 46 and she was 20. And, and as you say, he was German. And this wasn't so long after the First World War. So that didn't go down well. He, he was actually Catholic in his background. But I mean, I think that was about the only, that didn't go far. And that was the only, uh, the only, well, that wasn't even a box. I mean, he didn't tick any boxes. They were scandalized. They were appalled that this only daughter, still only 20, that this was where her life was going. They were absolutely appalled. It was so far from what they had hoped for. And a lot was riding on this daughter, this only daughter. And she, I think, knew early on in her life that the only way she could be the artist that she was had been born as, I mean, that's how she saw it. She was born as an artist. But she knew she could only fulfill that destiny away from that family who were always going to pull her back from it. You're listening to the Thames and Hudson podcast.
You mentioned just earlier, Joanna, the time that Leonora spent with Max in Paris and then in the south of France, in Saint-Martin-d'Ardèche, where they bought and created a home together. Can you tell us a little bit more about that time together with Max Ernst in France? Leonora initially left England to join Max in Paris. Going to Paris was a very important moment in her career, her life, her her future, because in Paris, she was kind of parachuted into the surrealist movement, which was by then in its mature moment. It It was a very exciting time artistically to be in Paris in 1938. Breton was there. Um, Obviously, she was joining forces with Max Ernst, who was already her lover. Duchamp was there. Dali was there. Meritor Oppenheim was there. And they were sitting in the cafes of Saint-Germain. And most of them were men in their 40s and 50s. And Leonora, age 20, was straight away at the table, sitting with with these people, mostly men, because of her connection with Max. She had this extraordinary seat at the table, as it were in this moment of surrealism. And that really gave her a a whole new vista on life. But the big problem in Paris for them was that uh, Max Ernst was married and his wife, Marie Berth, was also in Paris, clearly not very happy that her husband had come back from England with a new partner. Also, uh, Max Ernst fell out with Breton around the same time. So it made perfect sense for Leonora and Max to leave Paris to get a train down to the south of France and to go and stay at this uh, village called Saint-Martin-Dardèche, miles and miles away from Paris, even further away in those days. And initially, they went there and camped by the river. And then they obviously liked it there, so they decided to buy, they would like to move into a house. And they actually bought a house, or at least she bought a house, because he didn't have the money to buy a house. She did. And that was wired to her by her mother, who was still supporting her from England, even though she'd fallen out very much with her father. She would, in fact, never see her father again. That was the end of their relationship when she left Britain. Uh, She would see her mother again, and her mother did try and support her, particularly uh, at this moment, this very difficult moment in in her life. So Maury sent the money, they bought this house, and the house was pretty much a wreck. It's a 17th century house, a farmhouse on a hillside, just outside this little town. Feels like in the middle of nowhere, overlooking vineyards and the the hills in the distance. Very beautiful rural France. And they had some work done at the house. And uh, they built, in particular, a beautiful lantern room. So you can sit in that room now and see the view all around. And then they moved into the house and they began to create art, often using the fabric of the house. So they painted cupboard doors. Leonora particularly, she'd paint the, if you if you know Charleston, it's a sort of similar vibe, if you like, to what happened there. Uh, Max was doing bas relief on the walls on the outside, the external wall of the house, but also on the interior walls. Leonora was, yes, as I say, painting cupboards, painting the inside of cupboards. So if you go to the bathroom in that house today, you, you go to the loo and you're looking at a Leonora Carrington painting on the back of the door. You know, it's a it's a fairly extraordinary house and it has never been open to the public and there are no plans to ever open that house to the public. So it survives to this day as a sort of hidden treasure trove of surrealist art. They arrived in Saint-Martin-Dardèche in 1938 and they left early 1940. 
actually, Max Ernst left first because he was German by birth, and this was Vichy France, and France was uh, France had now been invaded in the north by the Nazis, but the south was still controlled by the Vichy government. And Max was taken away as an enemy alien, as they were called, and put into a camp. The first time he was taken away, Leonora managed to get him released. uh, And he returned to the farmhouse. Then they had another few months, which must have been very nail-biting for them. um, But but they thought the worst was behind them. But unfortunately, the worst was very far from behind them, because then uh, Max was arrested again. And this time he was taken away to a place that Leonora couldn't go and be near him as she had the first time and she couldn't get him away from there either and that was a terrible moment in her story and her life she was still only in her very early 20s she was all alone she cut herself off from her family and now a war divided her from her family and her country and she was alone and uh, she describes in one of her books how how hopeless life felt at that point and it was a friend who came to stay with her who was motoring through France on her way to Spain, who persuaded her to go with her, an English friend called Catherine Yarrell, who uh, must have really, really been determined. You know, you can imagine you wouldn't want to leave your friend in that situation all alone. So she persuaded Leonora to leave, but Leonora felt terrible about leaving. And this was something she talked to me about all these years later when I knew her. She felt terrible because she knew that if Max was released from, if he got out of his prison camp, he would, that's where he'd go back to and he, and he would find that she'd gone. And that's exactly what happened. He was released, he did go back and she had left. And before she left, she sold the house to the pub owner because they had a big tab going at the inn down the road because they'd obviously spent quite a lot of time there. They'd actually lived there for a while, I think, when they first went to the town. So they, you know, they'd, they'd been living on a tab, partly on a tab, so she had to sell that house. She wouldn't have left in those circumstances. She had to sell the um, house to the publican to repay the debt. So she didn't sell it for market price or anything. She just get, almost gave it away to cover the debts, took a few canvases herself. But obviously she couldn't take any of this art that was in the walls of the house. So that, uh, so that remained. And when Max returned the following year, he found her gone and uh, the house shut up. She, meanwhile, she went to Spain. Um, She went with her friend to Spain. Yes, tell us a little more about what then happened in Spain. I mean, it's been a a really tumultuous and and traumatic time for a still very young woman. What did she do on arrival in Spain? When she got to Spain, there was a a dramatic journey. You know, it was all very nail-biting and all very awful as well because of the war. Uh, what she saw and experienced on that drive. But eventually they got to the pair of them, the two women got themselves to Madrid. But Leonora, really scarred by this point, by what she'd been through, had essentially a breakdown there. And she was kind of in the care of a family who were, were business colleagues of her father's in England. So these people have been had been asked to keep an eye on her. And when they must have reported back that she'd kind of lost it, the Carringtons came up with a new plan, which was to have her admitted to a sanatorium in the north of Spain. Um, She ended up uh, in this hospital. The doctor who ran that place was actually experimenting with what would become electroconvulsive therapy. But they weren't using electrodes at that point. They were 
they were injecting a drug which which provoked a seizure and Leonora was given that drug several times and it was an absolutely terrifying experience for her which she wasn't really able to articulate much about even all these all these decades later Leonora uh, managed to escape from the sanatorium it's not entirely clear how but she definitely did she went to Madrid and in Madrid she met up with a guy called Renato Leduc who had been a friend of Picasso's in Paris and Picasso had all had introduced them when I was speaking earlier, I forgot to say that Picasso, of course, was also their friend in Paris, uh, one of the, the, the biggest name of all, really. So she had spent an evening with Max and Picasso and this guy, Renato, and she really liked him, thought he was a good guy. So she was there with, with a minder because she had a minder in Madrid when she, when she got away. There was a nurse who was sent to kind of keep an eye on her. And uh, she looked across the bar of this hotel and saw this guy who she'd known from Paris. And they had a conversation which the nurse couldn't understand because the nurse only spoke Spanish and they both spoke French and they spoke in French. And he basically said, get yourself to Lisbon, get away from this woman, get yourself to Lisbon and I'll help you there. So that was the arrangement they made. Renato fairly swiftly came up with the idea that they should get married because then she could get out of Europe really easily because she was the wife. She was over 21 by then, so she didn't need Harold Carrington's permission any longer to get married. Obviously, that wouldn't have been forthcoming. But she didn't need it. And they were married in the British Embassy in Lisbon. And then they were waiting for a place on a ship to go over to first New York. And then from there, they'd go to Mexico City. And what about that period in New York? I believe Leonora didn't stay so long there. But I can imagine it was quite a vibrant connecting or reconnecting time for her, given that many artists who were able had also left Europe for New York. Yeah, I think um, I think New York was that was quite a moment for Leonora when she arrived there. Indeed, you know, most of the surrealists had moved by then to New York, although they were moving into a new art movement. And I think that Leonora, well, she was certainly working there, painting there. And I suspect she had an inkling that this was a good place for her to, to work, that this was a place where her work would be noticed and where, you know, galleries would show her work. It, was an, it would have been an exciting place for her artistically to stay. But she wasn't going to stay there. She was going to go on with Renato. So they stayed a few months. She found him by then quite annoying because he used to go out and leave her and she'd be on her own. She didn't know when he was coming back. Um, but she pretty much decided by then that she wasn't going to go back to Max. I feel that what she had realised was that she needed her independence as an artist. And I think, I think she felt that being the much more junior partner in a marriage where the other artist was a very famous older man might not serve her best in a whole pile of ways. There's such a strong sense of Leonora's resolve of her determination to forge her own path. And I'd love to move now to Mexico City, where Leonora arrived in 1948, and where she'd remain for the rest of her life. What do you think it was that drew her to and, and kept her in Mexico after so many itinerant years? I think she initially went there because she just wanted to play out the story. I think by the time she left um, New York with Renato, she probably knew she wasn't going to stay with him. I mean, it's there'd always been an element of it being a marriage of convenience. 
And I think by that stage, it was even more. I think she knew that she would be leaving him when she got there. Um, so why not stay in New York, you know, where it looked like things could line up for her? And I feel that she wanted to play out this this saga, this story, and just see where life took her. And I think that Mexico City was, um, for her, the end of this road. It was a very long way from Lancashire, a very long way from Europe, even further than it is now, obviously, in terms of travelling there. And a very magical place. And André Breton, when he had been to Mexico in the 30s, earlier on in the 30s, before he even knew Leonora, he had said, this is the most surreal nation on the planet. And I think Leonora got a sense of that herself. It is a very surreal place. That It has some things in common with the countries Leonora knew, particularly, I think, Ireland and, of course, Spain. But it also was a very new world for her. Uh, there, there was a lot of wonder and learning to do. And I think another very big reason why Leonora stayed was that I think it was a place where she could live on her own terms. And one of the things I kind of realized, or, or one of the things that strikes me about it is, Leonora had grown up in this very privileged home in, in Lancashire, in England. And she managed to take herself to somewhere where she could live outside the boundaries because there was nobody she had to please in that setup. And she came from a place where people did lead sort of eccentric lives. That's what the upper English classes have always done. You know, you, there's an element of that. And here in Mexico, she could live outside those boundaries. In contrast to, for example, her friend or a friend, an acquaintance when she arrived in Mexico City, who was Frida Kahlo. And Frida couldn't live the way Leonora could live because she was of Mexico. She couldn't just, you can't ignore the cultural norms of your own place. And I think that's another reason why Leonora had to leave. And I think when she arrived in Mexico, she found this place where she could call the shots. For example, she would go to cantinas on her own in the evening. Now, that is not a thing even to this day that many women do in Mexico City. There are some cantinas, even in my time there, there are cantinas that women are not allowed into. So for this woman in the 1940s to be, in the early 1940s, to be going and sitting in a cantina, ordering a beer and writing, I mean, this was really outside the boundaries of how women live. But she could do it. She had the confidence to do it. She wasn't of that place. She could make her own rules, and she did. And I think that's a big reason why she stayed. And what about the home that Leonora created there? You capture so vividly this life that she was able to lead, as you say, on her own terms. Did her home in Mexico City reflect that? When Leonora arrived in Mexico City, at first, of course, she was living with Renato and then they split up. And then she went to live in a house that was lived in by Remedios Varo and her then husband, Benjamin Perret. They had been in Paris and all these other artists. But one evening at a party, Leonora met a man called Cheeky Vice, who would become her substantive husband. He was. They were married for 60 years. And in fact, the first time I went to meet Leonora, he was still alive. So I met him as well. Fairly early on in their marriage, they moved to a house in Calle Chihuahua in the Roma area of Mexico City. And that became the house where Leonora lived until she died in 2011. It was a house that was like the centre of this group of emigre artists who had left um, Europe and ended up in Mexico City. So 
There was Remedios Varo, who was a very good friend. There was Katy Horner, who is a very good friend. Jose, her husband, a Spanish guy. The way I see it, Leonora created her own family in Mexico City. Of course, that was primarily her husband, Cheeky, and then they went on to have two sons together. Um, But then there was this wider family. So she'd left her family behind in England and she remade those bonds. The house became her workspace. It was obviously where she raised her children. And she was also the main earner in that family. Cheeky was a photographer, but not someone who earned a lot of money. Uh, So she she was painting to make money for the family. And she did a lot of work in the house. And there were a lot of parties in the house. There was a, there was a lot of gatherings in that house. It was a you know pretty kind of um, magical place and space. And also the thing that struck me when I went there all these years later in 2006 was how like a house in Lancashire it was. It was it was a house. The ground floor was just on the on the on the stones. You know, like like you'd get in a in a house in Lancashire. And the funny thing was. It was always cold there and it was always dark. And you don't, you know, in Mexico City, a lot of a lot of houses have the lighting. You could go into the roof and there was the light there. And she would always say, oh, it's very cold. It's very, you know, and, and if I said, if I phoned up and said I was coming over, she'd say, well, bring lots of jumpers. It's very cold here. But of course, it wasn't cold outside. It was cold inside. Um, so I think that she she exported a bit of a bit of Lancashire with her. And there was always this sense as well that inside her home was her kingdom. That, and, and indeed, most of her work, or there isn't a, to rephrase that, there isn't a lot of her work that actually is embedded in, in, in Mexico, but there's an awful lot of work that happens in Mexico that's embedded in what happened to her in England, in Europe, in Lancashire. So the sense of integration, I suppose, in in bringing her origins to where she ended up and and drawing on those early experiences in the work that she did in Mexico City. I wondered, Joanna, having spent all of this time with Leonora and with the places that, that mattered to her and shaped her, if there was one place or perhaps one artwork through which you feel especially connected to her? When I was travelling through the places that had mattered to her for this, for this book, I was very struck by how close I felt to her in, in the south of France. And I guess that's probably in a way obvious because that house is pretty much untouched. It's almost as if they just left this morning, you know, this, their book's still there. The first time I went there, there were letters in the bedside table, you know, from Maury, her mother. Um, so it really is very much as she knew it. In a strange way, a house in Mexico, which is now a museum, by the way, recently transformed into a museum, I felt the absence of her there. And I think it was because that's where I'd known her and now she wasn't there. So actually, I mean, it's wonderful, the work that's happened there. It's a bit like Frida Kahlo's house. They preserve so much of Leonora's stuff. The things that surrounded her are there. Her bedroom is exactly as it was. The room was exactly, all the rooms were exactly as I remembered them. But without Leonora, they seemed very empty to me, whereas obviously I didn't know her in France and I felt her presence there. And then in terms of a painting, there are so many wonderful works that she did. But I guess one that's always been very close to my heart is a painting called The House Opposite, um, which she, she painted in the early 1940s. And it, it's almost like a doll's house. It's like a cutout of a house, of a home. So you're looking as you would into a doll's house at all the, all the rooms. 
And my interpretation of it is that the, the characters in the house are, some of them are sort of, it might be a, a horse or it might be a woman. And that's very typical of Leonora's work. Because often she identified with the horse. For example, you often see figures that are female body with a horse's head or a female figure. And then the shadow on the wall behind is a horse's head. So she was very interested in the interconnectedness of different species and uh, she's very interested in what binds things together rather than what separates. And in this painting, The House Opposite, I feel what she's done is painted herself at so many stages of her life. So there are a number of figures in that painting and I think they're all her and I think they're all her at different stages of her life. There's from being a little girl with her rocking horse, which is another big emblem of her work and recurs in many pieces from those days through to her in the kitchen with probably Catty and uh, Remedios later in her life. And then in one of the upstairs rooms, there's a figure in bed dying, strangely dying in a very similar way to the way Leonora would many decades later die, having oxygen, lying in bed, obviously near the end of her life. And then in the very bottom right-hand corner of that painting, there's a figure swimming away. And I, I always think that's Leonora now. She's, she's swum away and wherever she is, she's still out there somewhere and that's her swimming away from the scene. So I'm very fond of that painting. That's beautiful. Thank you. As a, as a final question, Joanna, you mentioned earlier your strong sense of Leonora's wisdom. And before we wrap up, I'd love to know what pieces of her advice or insight particularly stay with you. Absolutely. Well, that's an easy question, really, because um, because there's something she said to me that I've really tried to live by since I knew her. And what she said was, safety under any circumstances is an illusion. However safe we think we are in any situation, there's always danger. And also a situation that might seem safe, and obviously she rejected a lot of chances to be what people might consider safe, are often the most dangerous of situations. As in, you know, she could have gone back to Lancashire at that moment in 1941 and lived out the rest of her life as some rich man's wife. But the danger in that is you're not living your, what my girls would say, your best life. You know, you're not, you're not living the life that, that really is inside you to live. And I think that what she was talking about was the importance of seeing life in the round and accepting the need to take risks in order to, to, to have a chance of making the most of your time on this earth. So safety under any circumstances is an illusion. And I've thought about that a lot over the years. Well, thank you so much, Joanna. Thank you for your time and for sharing with us so much of Leonora's story. Thank you for bringing to life the places that mattered to her and for making her remarkable spirit so present for us too. It's really been a pleasure. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Thames and Hudson podcast. 